0: Well, I want to invite you to return to the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. I think it will be helpful if I read beginning in verse 10 uh, down through verse 13, then we'll kind of zero in on verse 11. But Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, In bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And let us pray. Father, we come again before thee and we're so thankful that the Most High is a prayer hearing God. And we thank you that we have an advocate with the Father. We thank you. We have a great, glorious high priest who makes intercession for us. And you give us such incentive to to pray to you. And I, I, I Draw near to Thee with those who are here this morning, and would pray for the help of Your Holy Spirit during these moments together to uh, just convey Your Your precious truth, especially about Your Your Son, Your Holy Son, in a way that is uh, pleasing to the, uh, in a way that is honoring to Thee and, and, and truly helpful to our own Christian lives. I pray it would be um, for Your glory, it would be for the good of our souls, it would be for the good of our own walk with You and the in the world within which you have put us so just bless our time together and we ask these things in jesus name amen well we have uh, as you know been moving our way through uh, this particular section of hebrews in, in recent weeks and and brought out the uh, importance of our lord's death in in two different ways uh, on the one hand his death is presented as a, a prelude to his exaltation Um, his death is presented as the ground or the reason for his being exalted to the place of the right hand of of God the Father. It's because of his suffering and because of his death he was crowned with glory and honor. But also his death is presented as the goal or the reason for his humiliation. Uh, We read that he was made for a little while, while lower than the angels. This is so by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. Well, then, as you move to verse 10, verse 10 makes the point that this kind of death that he died, which included suffering, it was a fitting kind of death. It was appropriate. It was necessary. And we notice this was true because of the character of God. God is referenced here as for whom are all things and to whom are all things. So this is the infinitely wise and glorious God whose understanding is infinite. And it's unthinkable that such a a God would choose a, a course of action that was not wise and fitting and necessary and appropriate. We read from the gospel that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. It had to happen this way. There was no other option. And we saw that it was fitting because it accomplishes God's purposes in bringing many sons to glory. And then also we noticed that it was appropriate or fitting because of our our Lord's unique qualification in accomplishing this purpose or accomplishing this particular mission, as there was no other plan that would have accomplished the redemption of God's people. Also, there was no other person who had the necessary qualifications to accomplish this specific mission. He was made perfect through his sufferings to accomplish the salvation of his people. Well, then when we get to uh, verse 11, there's really a profound and a glorious statement here about his relationship to the many sons that are brought to glory. A great statement about the nature of his relationship to the people of God. It's presented in a a threefold way, and I think what it does, it helps you and I to understand our relationship with the person of Christ. If I were to ask you how you would depict your relationship with the person of Christ, there's any number of things that you might say, you might convey that he's your savior or that he's your lord or he's your prince or other things that would come to mind so this particular text helps us to understand our relationship to the person of christ in three respects which may not be the first things that would come to your mind that's what we'll consider this morning in the first place he is presented as the one who accomplishes the sanctification of his people jesus is presented here as the one who accomplishes the sanctification of his people the text puts it like this for both he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified. Uh, the basic thought here of sanctification, it's to uh, make holy or to consecrate, to set apart little um, More expansive definition would be to make us dedicated to God, either in becoming more distinct, devoted, or morally pure. I've made some reference to the commentary by Robert Martin, and he indicates that the word sanctify has two possible meanings. In common usage, it means to set apart for sacred use, and he indicates it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in this way. God is he who sanctifies his people, sets apart his people. But he writes in the book of Hebrews, cleansing from defilement is a necessary corollary to the concept of sanctification as consecration. Purification, of course, is not the whole of sanctification, but where pollution of sin defiles the object, Part of the act of sanctification is to cleanse away that defilement. It makes reference to the Puritan John Owen. The act of Christ, which is here intended, is that which he did for the sons when he suffered for them according to God's appointment. The writer thus uses the word to sanctify as a virtual equivalent to purify from sin. To purify from sin, and Owen himself wrote, the children that were to be brought into glory, being in themselves unclean and unholy, on that account separated from God, he has to purge their natures and and make them holy. So, I would offer uh, three or four further thoughts here um, in regard to this sanctifying act on the part of our Lord. Number one is presented as as a work; it's based upon the sacrificial death of Christ. So, we're saying that that Christ. Is engaged in the work of sanctification, but that work is based upon what he specifically accomplished on the cross, on the sacrificial death of Christ. It's effected on the basis of his atoning work on the cross. <clears throat> William Lane wrote in Hebrews, references to sanctification are regularly coupled to a statement about, about the offering of the blood of Jesus. And this point is really powerfully underscored throughout the book of Hebrews, just maybe two other verses. In, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, uh, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then Hebrews 13, 12 therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate the operative statement there would be that he might sanctify the people through his blood so the, the purifying work on the part of christ is presented here as as the effect of his sacrificial death on the cross well uh, a second thought here and this relates to uh, excuse me some application to what really what it means to be a christian Since this is a work of Christ himself, it's a work of Christ in the souls of his people, a deep, therefore, a deep interest in being holy is an evidence of conversion. So the point I'm making here is since this sanctifying work, this purifying work of Christ is a deep, real, powerful work, in the soul, sanctification is to be set apart. Therefore, a great evidence of whether or not a person has been born again, that there will be a real, true, deep, ongoing interest in, in holiness. This, this must be the case, because the one who is saved is also sanctified, and sanctification is the idea of being set apart for God. And, and if I can just maybe expand on this a little bit, I would put it like this: this must be true. Because when a person is converted, there's a union with the person of Christ who himself is an infinitely pure and holy and glorious person. When a person is converted, for the first time they share the life of Christ and he's the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his person and him is no darkness at all. To behold his glory is to behold purity without darkness. Purity, not carnality or holiness, not worldliness. I would also add, this must be the case because in regeneration, the third person of the Trinity is involved. It happens because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in the soul. In John chapter 3, in our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus, he said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from. And where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the, the Spirit who effects this immediate eternal transformation is holy. It's the Holy Spirit. And another text that I, I think is very helpful in making this point, that conversion will result in, in sanctification and an interest in holiness, is First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, don't be deceived which I take to mean there may be a tendency to be led astray at this particular point. He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say, such were some of you. That was your pattern. But you were washed. Then he says, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the import of these verses make it very clear. Salvation is an immediate, profound, moral, and spiritual transformation. It includes sanctification. This is God acting and setting a people apart to be his. So there will be a a true, real interest if one has been sanctified by Christ in the nature of the case that there will be in this life an interest in, in holiness and holy living. Well, third, um, the sanctification, which is a work of Christ in the soul, will be applied not selectively but universally. So I'm, I'm saying there will be an interest in holiness, but it will not be selectively applied but universally applied. Um, in, in every department of life, we read in First Peter chapter 1, in verse 15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. I take that to mean in all your behavior. It means at all times be holy. It means we're always seeking to reflect the character of Christ. And here's the reason. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So it's not restrictive, um, but it's pervasive and applies to every dimension of one's life. So it's it's God's will that his people would be holy because it replicates his nature and its character. It's a good witness in the world to pursue holiness well fourthly this work of christ in sanctifying his people it's a continuous activity on the part of the person of christ he who sanctifies uh, it's in the present tense so it's an ongoing activity on the part of christ it's not like uh, i'll just get this ball rolling now it's all in your court that's not the idea Um, he continues this influence of holiness however That doesn't absolve you and I of the responsibility of pursuing holiness. Now, in this particular text, our attention is drawn to the activity of Christ. This is what he does. But in chapter 12, if we ever make it there, in verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all men. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness or the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So sanctification, that process is applied to the person of Christ in our text. But later on, he says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Second Corinthians 7, 1 says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's a wonderful phrase, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Excuse me, in the fear of the Lord, in the context of God is watching everything I do in all places at all times. Hodge writes, therefore, says the apostle, having these promises of intimate association with God, In this assurance of his love, let us purify ourselves, not merely keep ourselves pure by avoiding contamination, but as already defiled, let us strive to become pure. Though the work of purification is so often referred to God as its author, this does not preclude the agency of his people. They're to work out their own salvation, because it is God who worketh in them both to will and to do. So, again, I would say to you that this desire for holiness, it's, it's an evidence of a true work of grace, and it's a, a pleasant work of grace in the soul that won't be, you may not have to be holy. I, I desire to be holy. You want to be holy because it's reflective of the character of God. Hodge puts it like this. If God's agency and sanctification does not stir and direct ours, if it doesn't create the desire for holiness and strenuous efforts to attain it, we may be sure that we are not its subjects. He's leaving us undisturbed in our sins. If there's no interest in holiness, it means he has left us undisturbed in our sins. Well then, <clears throat> fifthly, the sanctification activity on the part of our Lord, it's glorious and it's needed to truly enjoy fellowship with God the Father. We cannot enjoy fellowship with God the Father apart from this sanctifying, purifying work of Christ in our souls. As one author put it, he's effected this cleansing so as to fit us for fellowship with the Father. You're familiar with these words from First John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and these things we write that our joy may be made complete or that our joy may be made full so the effect of sanctification is is fellowship with god and the effect of fellowship with god is unique kind of joy in the soul that only he can produce and this is something that unconverted people cannot do we couldn't do this prior to conversion because according to scripture we, we weren't sons and daughters we were enemies we were we were dead and trespasses and sins and had no desire for this kind of fellowship or this inclination it just, it just wasn't there we were separate from God we were not deriving our life from the person of Christ but this sanctification um, fits us and inclines the soul for fellowship with the being of God well, secondly, this relationship to Christ and his people is marked by, the word I'm using here is identification. Identification. I'm thinking here of the little phrase in the middle of the verse, all from one father, if you have a New American Standard version of the Bible, uh, all from one father. The term all here. It's inclusive and refers to the Lord himself and all those who are sanctified by his blood. So it includes the one who is doing the sanctifying as well as those who are sanctified. And the New American Standard translation is all from one father. Uh, you'll notice that the word father is in italics, which indicates that it was not in the original text at all. It was added in, this was an interpretive decision uh, by on the part of the, the translators, so in the New King James, the American Standard Version, and the King James Version, they all read all of one. There's no mention of the word father because it's not in the original text. The ESV has all have one source. No speculation about who that source is. <clears throat> and there's significant difference of opinion among commentators about um, this, this little pronoun one, uh, who or what it refers to. The, the pronoun could be what's called a masculine gender and refer to a person. And the options there would be God the Father, which would be supported by the previous verse, uh, which makes reference to him for whom are all things. Some believe it refers to Adam as the source or the ancestor of all humanity. Some think it refers to Abraham. There's a common descent from Abraham. That would be supported by verse 16, which says, "...for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham." Or it could be, instead of the masculine gender, this pronoun one could be what is called the neuter gender. That's just the grammatical language. In that case, it doesn't refer to a person. It doesn't refer to someone, but it refers to something. And then the emphasis would be on human nature. As Philip Hughes wrote, the community of human nature, which binds the incarnate son to us. So he who sanctifies, and they are sanctified what they have in common is human nature. they all share the same human nature. And I found this to be more of a compelling way of understanding it, as Philip Hughes says that the context here is essentially one of the theology of, of incarnation, that is of Jesus taking on human flesh. His incarnation was a necessary prerequisite for his endurance of suffering as man for men. And then verse 14, a little bit further down, I think powerfully commends this understanding. It says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He became like them. He became human. He became a partaker of human nature that through death he might render powerless who had the power of death that is the devil so his incarnation means that all are from one that is the same human nature he partook of the same nature of those that he came to save so there's a complete identification with those that he came to save and this is the reason he's such a great and glorious high priest he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he became like us he was tempted in all things as a human being and so he can Help us when we are in need and we can draw near to him. So our relationship with him includes sanctification. It includes this identification with his people. And, and thirdly, key word here is condescension. The condescension of Christ in identifying with his people. The condescension of Christ in identifying with his people. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. As O'Brien puts it, the the clause that follows serves to introduce the scriptural support for the solidarity between the son and the sons. The point here is that this phrase, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, that's a statement of solidarity between the person of Christ and the people that he came to save. And the three quotes from the Old Testament, they all support this idea that there is this oneness, this union, solidarity between Christ and his people. This This is a glorious reality as William Lane puts it in in spite of the qualitative difference in the sonship shared and the position of Jesus as sanctifier, as opposed to theirs as those who need sanctification, he does not hesitate to declare that they are his brothers. Our brotherhood is first, William, excuse me, William Hughes writes, Our brotherhood is first with him, and then therefore with each other, for it's the brotherhood of the redeemed. Then the risen Lord refers to his disciples as my brethren. In Matthew 28, 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, go and take word to my brethren. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them. Let me offer you four comments with with respect to this condescension on the part of our lord and by condescension i mean he's not ashamed to call his people brethren first of all our appreciation for this is heightened i think when we consider that we do have a tendency to be ashamed of him you with me there we do have a. T- he's not ashamed of us but we do have a tendency to be ashamed of him uh, some have suggested there's an illusion allu- here to Luke 9:26 Jesus said whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of his holy angels the point is made a bit stronger in John chapter 8 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels And I would suggest to you that because we live in a sinful, perverted, fallen world, and we have remaining sin, there is a tendency on occasion to be ashamed of the person of Christ and and to cave into worldly peer pressure. If this was testimony time, we would probably all have examples of some time where we've done that, should have spoken up for Christ and didn't, or maybe waffled a little bit in the way that we presented the gospel. Let me give you an example, I think a good example from the New Testament. Um, I would offer Timothy as an example here. Um, let me just kind of convey what I mean. Here, here's what Paul writes about, and this is what was read in your hearing this morning. This is what Paul writes about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And then he says this I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his proven worth. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. So that's what he says about Timothy. Now, about two years later, when he writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, now he's writing to Timothy. and Here's what he says. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, the question that comes to my mind is why do you have to tell a man like this not to be ashamed? I mean, why do you have to tell him, don't be ashamed of the truth. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of your association with me. Um, don't be ashamed to suffer for the gospel. Well, my answer is because there is an ongoing proclivity to be ashamed of the gospel, even though we understand all of its glory and all of its beauties. And this arises, I believe, in part from remaining sin and in part from the fact that the true soul-saving biblical gospel is not always well-received by unsaved people. The true soul-saving biblical gospel, I would argue, is offensive to the sensibilities of the natural man. Let me just give you, if if all we had to do, if somebody comes up to you or I and, and, and says, what do I have to be saved from? It's just that simple. And we just take a few minutes and say, well, you need to be saved from the reality of the wrath of God. That's what you need to be saved from. You need to be saved that because you are a sinner. And the wrath of God is directed toward you every single moment of every single day. Not just because you have sinned, because of what you are. You are the object of God's wrath every single day. That doesn't go over real big with unsaved man. That goes against his moral sensibilities. So there's a... There's a tendency to waffle a little bit, not bring all that out, make it a little bit more pleasing. So that there is this tendency to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, even though he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Secondly, and relatedly, he's not ashamed to call us brethren, even though. This is kind of saying the same thing in a different way. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, even though he has reason to be ashamed to call us brethren. We may be ashamed of him without legitimate reason, because we're maybe more concerned about what people think. Philip Hughes wrote, though he had every cause to be ashamed of us and abandoned us to the judgment we justly deserve, he compassionately abased himself that we might with him be raised to glory this is great motivation i think not to be ashamed of the person of christ philip hughes wrote uh, those to whom hebrews was addressed uh, were viewed with contempt by society but the crucified and exalted christ is not ashamed to call them brothers society viewed them with contempt but the lord of glory calls them brothers Well, third, this is a glorious reality. He's not ashamed to call us brethren because of the the radical distinction between his his character and ours. I'm saying this is a glorious reality because there's a great gulf fixed between his character and ours. He's infinitely holy, and we are not. He is without sin, and we are not. Yet he condescends to refer to us as brothers. Calvin said, if Christ was merely a man and nothing more, where would be either the great condescension or particular kindness manifested in calling men brethren? If, however, he possessed a higher nature, then was it an act of peculiar kindness and condescension in him to call men brethren? Well, he does possess a higher nature, and it is a marvelous act of condescension to call men and women brethren. <clears throat> and then just the final thought under this, this heading, This is a great reality, he's not ashamed to call us brethren, because our our brotherhood with Christ is not just a function of the incarnation, it's a function of his redemption. This is a glorious reality, because it's not just that he took on human flesh, he did, and that was needed, but it's particularly a function of his redemption, it's particularly a function of his suffering in your place and mine when he died on the cross. So when we think of our relationship with the being of Christ, we think here, First of all, the term sanctification, his sanctifying work in us. And then he identifies with us by taking on human flesh and he condescends to us by referring to us or calling us brothers and sisters. And shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the the reality of the gospel, the power of the gospel. We thank you that you have not dealt with us in accordance with our sins, but you have been pleased In accordance with your own secret counsel, you have been pleased to deal with us in accordance with marvelous grace and on the basis of not our own works, but the works of your son in our behalf. So we thank you for the gospel. I thank you for each one that is here. I pray that you might be pleased to uh, take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our hearts and lives for the good of our souls and, and for your honor